Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Danny Ricardo did was phenomenal. Jesus Christ is the only person I'm aware of who was able to walk on water. Max Verstappen isn't Jesus Christ. Are these cars now so quick on this racetrack that we're at the limit of what a human being has got the capacity to absorb and adapt and adjust to? You could make a three-mile racetrack comfortably, and if you go the wrong way around the roundabout, you could go all the way down the Avenue Princess Grace as far as you like until you get to France. Watty and Jack on F1. So we've had the Monaco Grand Prix, and uh, before we talk about that, you had a little trip to Monaco before beforehand. What were you doing? What were you doing out there? Well, for the first time since 1983, I actually drove a racing car. In fact, driving is probably an overstatement. I guided a Lotus 18, but not any Lotus 18. It was a car that, in 1961, Sterling Moss, as he was in those days, won the 61 Monaco Grand Prix defeated the might of Ferrari, particularly Phil Hill and Richie Ginter, who had a significant car advantage over Sterling in the Lotus 18, which is a privately entered car by Rob Walker Racing. Rob Walker, yes, racing. Sterling did one of his brilliant drives. In those days, it was 100 laps, and I think the race took over about two and a, three, two and a quarter or two and a half hours. Uh, interestingly, Sterling opted to to drive in that Grand Prix with the side panels removed. So you had a 3D view of Sterling with his size sixes dancing between the brake, the clutch, and the throttle pedal. And, I mean, it was just an amazing drive. And to finish ahead of Ferrari, who probably had about a 40-horsepower advantage over you in uh, the Lotus 18 with a 1.5-litre Coventry Climax engine, goes down as one of the greatest victories in the history of the Monaco Grand Prix. And that was the car I was driving. There was a celebration uh, in the historic weekend of the 50, sorry, the 70 years of post-war Formula One or, or yeah, Grand Prix, because in one year it was a sports car race. So I was kindly invited by the Automobile Club de Monaco, along with a number of, well, there weren't many of my contemporaries, they're all much younger. But nevertheless, it made me feel young at heart. 
And the idea was to do a parade, a go and do an outlap, a parade of five or six or seven laps, which is as much as I could do anyway, and then come back in again and then repeat the same on Sunday. It was a part of the show and a part of the celebration of a very different kind of Monaco weekend where the Grand Prix is held. So everything is more laid back and it's a more informal, I think, atmosphere and, uh, and a sensation. A number of the competitors are actually very active in motor racing. And I mean, a very good friend of ours, Jack, from your days back when you were a normal broadcaster and <laughs> you know, enjoying proper motor racing, was Andy Suchek, who raced in a, I think a BRM 153. And I tell you what, watching Andy and some of the other, you know, what I would call professional drivers in those historic cars, they drove the wheels off them. And it was great to see those cars again at Monaco and cars that look individual. I mean, a March, a 71 March, you couldn't mistake it for anything else. The Yardley BRM, clearly identifiable. The McLaren of the day, I think it was an M19 that Stuart Hall was in, you know, very much identifiably a McLaren. Where has identity gone in contemporary Formula One? Even if you painted all these cars, these historic Formula One cars white, you could tell a Brabham from a Ferrari, from a McLaren, from a March, from a BRM. But could you, Jack, tell the difference visually if you saw on track a white Mercedes, a white Ferrari, a white Red Bull, could you actually say, that's a Ferrari, that's a Mercedes, that's a Red Bull? I'll answer it for you, and the answer would be, you'd find difficulty. I think I would find difficulty. I th- I, yeah, it would be interesting to try, actually. Because I think, anyway, I think you see it so much, you kind of know it a little bit, but certainly nowhere near as distinctive as the... No, and unfortunately, this is a function of, of regulations. And what was actually enjoyable, and actually sent fear through me when I looked at them the the construction of some of these 70s forget about the 60s which are mainly tube frame cars and the Lotus 18 I was driving was a tube framed single seater and in terms of driver safety and protection well you're a racing driver you you if you want to be a racing driver you race the car of the day if you don't want to hurt yourself or have the potential to hurt yourself, go and play football or something, you know, girly like that. Do, uh, did, 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 had you driven a, a sort of 60s F1 car before this weekend? I never drove a 60s Formula 1 car, but the single-seaters that I raced and in my formative years racing in Ireland was in a tubular-framed right. sports car like a Crosley or a tube-framed single-seater like the Brabham BT, I think it was a BT-16. And then when I started in Formula 2, it was in a Brabham BT30, again, a tube-framed race car, because that's what fundamentally customer cars were manufactured in. And it was really Lotus who pioneered the concept of a monocoque, and those days made of aluminium. Um, and it was a bit like a cigar tube with the top third removed. That's where you sat. So car design and car safety and, and whatever in this era, was of a magnitude you can't describe how far behind it is compared to what we have today. I mean, the current Formula One car is a phenomenal piece of engineering, but it's a porker. I mean, they weigh so much. I mean, if you think back, I mean, going forget about the cars of the 60s, but the Formula One cars when I was competing, 
I think the weight limit, and this whether it probably didn't include the driver, I think the weight limit of the car with fluids but not fuel was around about 525 kilograms. Really? Up to 550, then 575. Wow. Cars now, I think it's is it just under 700 kilograms. Yeah. I mean, part of that is the structure that a driver sits in. Part of it is, you know, the the engineering limitations by regulation that you can't build an engine under a certain weight because it, it's cheaper to try and keep the weight high in terms of cost effectiveness and it stops engine manufacturers going down the route of building things that you would probably want to put into space as a satellite or something. So the cars in the period, I mean, I think the Lotus I drove was under 500 kilograms. 728 a modern F1 car. And then you put the driver into it, it's just under 800 kilograms. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's almost as heavy as one of those Formula E things. <laughs> they're, um, they're about 800. Well, I mean, they're, oh, I mean God, don't even start me. <laughs> so the cars were much lighter, but of course, in terms of driver safety and driver protection, they were much, much poorer than the contemporary car, or the modern car that we know today. And I have to say, that is one of the improvements that's occurred. But I would love to see... Well, actually, we did see it a few years ago. I'm going back probably 10 years ago when Adrian Newey was at McLaren and he made a car that called the MP418, mm. which was his fantasy Formula One car in which it was built to the, 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 the lightest possible uh, construction, I think, that anybody has ever seen. And sadly, it, it didn't work because everything was just so marginal in terms of driver seating in the car, in terms of cooling, everything was done. If this was your fantasy Formula One car and it never had to race, it was probably going to be the quickest Formula One car ever made. But mm. sadly, it never really worked and it sort of got... It was an indulgence for McLaren at that time and for Adrian to go out and do something which he wanted to do and the team wanted to see if there was any benefits or gains that they would they could accumulate from this. Um, but it never worked. So did you enjoy driving the Lotus? It was interesting because what I discovered, and well, in fact, I really knew that I'm no longer a race driver. What I did was I drove around very cautiously on the Saturday because the things that have changed in, well, say the 35 years since I raced in Monte Carlo in 1983. No, I didn't race in Monte Carlo in 83. No. <laughs> practiced and, and tried to qualify but neither McLaren actually qualified. Both of us, Lauda and myself, failed to qualify. In fairness, it rained on the, on the Saturday, so we missed out. Your body gets out of sync with what a racing car is designed to do. And fundamentally, you've got to adapt to the body language of the racing car. And when you turn the wheel and the, the attitude the car will take, as you come to a corner, mid-corner exit. So on the Sunday run, I felt more comfortable. But in fact, in terms of comfort, I was, you know, I'm not as slimf-like as I was in my active days of being a Grand Prix driver. bit like you, Jack. <laughs> comfortable living has put a bit of weight around the waist, hasn't it, Jack? So I was never a professional athlete. No, you were never a professional athlete. athlete. But, uh, you know, when you slip into a, a very slim, small... 1.5 litre Formula One car, 
and the current owner of the car is smaller than I am. So I I didn't have the kind of space. And ordinarily, I would always go to a car before I'd ever sit in it to drive it and try and make a few adjustments to get comfortable. So I was sitting on the car, not in the car. And therefore, I was very conscious that I didn't feel I was at one with the car the way I would normally want to do if I was racing that car. But it's just it's just this thing of uh, speed, distance, judgment. You've got to sort of reprogram that. And that comes back pretty quick. All of this stuff comes back actually very quickly. But you're doing it on a very demanding racetrack. And as we saw at the weekend, it's very easy to clip barriers and easy to damage cars and whatever. And when you're driving a car that's been made available to you, and it's a, sp- a particularly important car in the history of, of the Monaco Grand Prix, and it's owned by a private entrant, you have to respect that. And hopefully I did so. But on the Sunday, I got a sense of, well, there ain't an awful lot of downforce, for example. You're on Dunlop tyres from effectively the tyre that would have been used in the early to middle 60s. And that's a tyre that you could have gone around the world on in terms of mileage, not like the the tyre that the contemporary Formula One car runs on, where, as in the case of the hyper tyre at Monaco, it was good for about 15 laps. And that was on a, on a road track, on a circuit like Barcelona. Well, you wouldn't even take the tyre there. Mm. So all this is something that you have to factor in to driving the car. And I mean, I was cautious and respectful of the equipment that I was given but by Sunday I was beginning to feel and and once you get a car to make the car do what you wanted to do rather than the car wanting to do what it wants to do once you gain that confidence and you get that control then it was it was enjoyable but if you want to be a race driver whether it's an historic racing or you want to be a contemporary competitor in any international single-seater motor race you need to spend time and you need to spend hours behind the wheel or as in current times it's probably behind the simulator. But it's the it's the physical aspect of it and getting your body in harmony with the race car and the movement and what the tire is doing and the attitude of a car in a corner and on it goes. Did you want to come in when they, after that second run on Sunday and it was like, right, that's it, you're done. Did you want to come in or, or did you want to stay out a couple more laps? Oh, I said, when are they going to put the flag out? <laughs> I only wanted to do a couple of laps. They kept us up for about six or seven laps. Every time I went past the start finish line, where's the flag? No, no, like Alan Prost in 84. Like, yeah, no, the well, they, they didn't have any of that. But uh, the more you drove the car, the more the, the rediscovery of what driving a single-seater is about. And it's the, it's the ultimate race car and the, the sensations and the, the things that you had, the things that you did naturally and came as second nature, you start to rediscover and, and re-access. And those are things that I've sort of put away in the cupboard and closed the door because you know, I'm not an age now where I want to be a competitive racing driver. That's something I did in another period in my life. I could still do it, but a part of what would require me to actually focus on it properly would be to go and spend time in a gym and lose some weight and do specific exercises. I mean, things like concentration, for example. You forget how important concentration is, and concentration is something that you can uh, enhance by driving. 
So when you stop racing and, and relax into a more sedentary kind of lifestyle, the depth of concentration that you have as a natural part of your driving sort of armory, again, you've got to go and sort of relight that. All comes back. It's all there. It's all stored away. Just you've got to have the momentum and the motivation to want to go and do it on a regular basis. And make no mistake, even a car like that little Lotus, it's still quick enough that if you've made an error, you could certainly damage the car and you might hurt yourself. I've done the hurt bit in an earlier phase in my life. I don't want to do it again at 72. When you say that, you know, everything's, you know, it all started to come back to you and the instincts and everything. Are you are you able to change those instincts as a driver? If you look at like Max Verstappen, it's all very well people saying you got to crash less, for example. But can you choose to crash less? Can he choose, or is that just who he is, and that has to be how he is if he wants to be as fast as he is? Well, there's, I mean, there's. I think I've used the term before. In the case of Max Verstappen, he needs to think smart, not just think fast. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I've said this on a number of occasions, and I think I even said it as far back as last year. You need to think smart, not just think fast. Thinking fast and, and you know, putting on a display of the unquestionable ability and skill that Max Verstappen holds, and as, you know, he gets into a race car, and he is visually quick. And, I mean, thinking back just to Baku, Early in the session, when he went back, I'd having had a problem or he might have even damaged the car. Mm. He was immediately back on it and putting energy. And you could see the energy he was putting into the car. And that's where he was getting the grip because he was making the tire react to the energy he was putting into them. And that's where he picked up the speed very quickly. Whereas I think Danny Ricciardo was a little bit slower in getting back up to speed or picking up the speed that Max was. But the danger of doing that is, you know, Jesus Christ is the only person I'm aware of who was able to walk on water. Max Verstappen isn't Jesus Christ. And I don't, I don't want to offend any Christians in saying that. But there are times when young drivers of immense natural ability and potential come along. Some of them are smarter than others. And Max has to smarten up, I think. Can he, can he be told to smarten up? Because... Asked Gerhard Berger about it at the weekend, and he said, "There's nothing you can say to him. No, you know, Christian Horner, Helmut Marco, Mataschitz, whatever. They can't sit him down and say you've got to be stop crashing. You've got to think smart, not think fast. Like he can only decide that for himself, can't he? Well, I think part of the trouble is is an effect what occurred at the end of last year when I mean, we've been over this all like yeah. three or four times now." I believe that the team in part is responsible for the, the woes that they're suffering from. And they're now realizing that after six events, there have been incidents in all six events involving Max. And it's cost, forget about what has cost Max and the Drivers' Championship. It's what has cost Red Bull team. And make no mistake, the focus that a race team has got in terms of championships is the Manufacturers' Championship. The Drivers' Championship, to them, yes, it's, it, that maybe that's the thing that the public look at and the public uh, really are only interested in, 
but the points that the teams score in their manufacturers' championship has a de- direct correlation to, to their income stream. So if they're losing money because their drivers you know, either failing to score points for, for whatever reason, but in particular if he's having a number of incidents that are avoidable in my opinion, they're now realizing that they've got to you know, try and get some kind of sense into Max Verstappen's head to make him appreciate that, yes, you have got a potential to be a multiple world champion, but start thinking smart if he's got that capacity. If he doesn't have that capacity, I just don't know how long it'll take for him to, to realize himself that there are different ways of achieving success. And obviously what he wants to do is win more Grand Prix. He wants to win a world championship. But don't think that there's only the way you're currently attacking this. There are other ways. There are other great drivers who won multiple world champions championships. And they didn't drive. I mean, I often cite Jackie Stewart. Hmm. And Jackie was a driver who immense natural ability, but a great level of natural intelligence behind the wheel. Didn't always have the quickest car on the grid, but always understood how to complete a Grand Prix, pick up points, and win races when he was in a position to do so. When you first went to Monaco in F1, which was 1974, did it feel, it's such an anomaly now in current F1 with you know, your Shanghai International Circuits and all of this. It's so much an anomaly. Did it feel as much of an anomaly in 74? Did you get there and go, this is crazy? Or did you get there and go, actually, it's just, it's a little bit more narrow than usual, but it's all right. Jack, I don't want to be condescending in this. No, please be. But if you had any knowledge of history of Irish road racing circuits, you would have known that Dunboyne, and this is my era. Before that, you had Dundrod. Dundrod still is, I believe, the best road circuit ever in the world. Wow. Tragically, a major accident or a number of accidents um, saw the end of this racetrack for, for motor racing. It's still used for motorcycles. I mean, it is scarily quick. I mean, that and the Northwest 200 mm. for motorcycles are two of the scariest racetracks in the world. But Dunboyne, for example, was fundamentally a triangular circuit through the village of Dunboyne, about 15 miles, 20 miles outside Dublin. Or the other road race circuit that was used in period was Phoenix Park, Mm. the largest municipal park in Europe. And it is lined with some magnificent trees, which are very stout and I don't know today when because it's still as a yeah. current racetrack, but in my day they were very, they they lined the racetrack, they made a lovely avenue of beech trees or ash or oak or whatever, and they were considerably stronger than any race car of the day. And I raced in those racetracks, and I think what I discovered when I went to Monte Carlo was it reminded me of racing on circuits where precision. And maybe a little bit of common sense or nous was fundamental because if you made a mistake at Dunboyne or at Phoenix Park, you were going to probably have a big accident, and there were some tragic, tragically large accidents 
during the time that I was racing there. So to me, to go to Dunboy, I go to, to Monaco, I loved the, the concept of racing within the confines of the barriers around the circuit and using the, maybe the, the knowledge and expertise I'd gained from racing in these road tracks in Ireland to know that you can get so close, but that's it. You can't just launch the car at the barrier and expect the barrier to step back. It ain't going to step back. It's there. It's rooted. And if you make a minor error, you're going to pay a big penalty. So to me, it was it was a wonderful extension of, of what I'd done in Ireland. And it went all right, didn't it, 74? Yeah, I got my first championship point. In those days, you had points down to sixth place. You got one point. And, I mean, for a private team, Hexagon of Highgate, uh, it was an amazing result. And, you know, a private team against six or seven factory teams, okay, the reliability was a major element of, of finishing Grand Prix in these days. Nevertheless, to finish and get one point in our first trip to Monte Carlo, I, I was very proud of, and I know that Paul Michaels up in Hexagon um, was equally proud. It was a, a, a magic moment for all of us. Did it really feel like a like a win? It was a, it was a, it was elevation from being a competitor to being a points scorer. Mm. So in those days, you got nine for a victory, six for second, four, three, two, one. Unlike today, it's 25, 18, 15, whatever. Yeah. So that one valuable point was very, very significant. And you know, we were able to walk. We went to the, the gala dinner that night because it was almost a mandatory requirement and walked in. We have become a team that's now scored a manufacturing point as well as a driver point in the 1974 World Championship. And uh, you had a pole position at Monaco as well, didn't you? I did in 1977 in the Brabham Alfa Romeo. Unfortunately, the pole position at that time was on one of the what they call zebra crossings. Mm. And uh, I lost the benefit of the pole position to Judy Schechter, who used the wolf very, very efficiently and you know, made it, well, you know how difficult overtaking at Monte Carlo is. I tried extremely hard, probably tried too hard and consequently led to the retirement. It, and it was, it was, so it was still difficult in 77. How how difficult was it then compared to now where it's, you know, pretty much impossible? Was it still impossible then? It was, it was more difficult than any other racetrack that we raced on in that time. But compared to the modern car, because of aerodynamics and because of the braking capacity, everywhere that we could maybe outbreak somebody, for example, a popular place would have been into Mirabeau. Mm. Or Sandivo, those were the two principal places. Might have tried it into Tabac. Because mm. was the was the tunnel chicane quite fast? Well, the, the, the tunnel was unchanged. It was it probably wasn't quite as well lit as it is today. But of course, the chicane was further down, and it was a quick chicane. It was like third gear in a five speed gearbox. Oh, wow. So it was a quick flick left and right. I mean, it was it was. I mean, if you think going through the swimming pool is threading the eye of a needle. I mean, the, the 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 head of the needle that we were trying to thread would be microscopic, yeah. and it was quick. Yeah. Um, I mean, the swimming pool today is much easier because the entry has been eased back. When I was doing it, you had a concrete wall that defined your clipping point. Mm. Now that's been changed, and also the thing that I noticed was the exit of the swimming pool is very much more of a straight line. Mm. 
And that's what I think Max Verstappen was trying to do. He was trying to make it a straight line rather than making it a, making it a, you know, a conscious turn to the right and back to the left. They're, they're smallish changes, but they do make a difference. So, um, but progress with aerodynamics. Aerodynamics have killed Monte Carlo as pretty much as the braking capacity because where modern Formula One cars would brake and they're carrying a lot of extra speed in certain parts of the track as well, has just taken away most of the opportunity for a Formula One car to overtake. So do you think Formula One should still go to Monaco? Is there still worth going there if you know that every year it's going to be... I mean, I think for me this year was a bit different because of the tyres that meant that people weren't necessarily pushing during the Grand Prix, which was a bit of a shame. But do you think it still deserves a place on the F1 calendar? Well, the thing that makes Monte Carlo, to me, so amazing is the fact that Formula One cars and F2 cars and Formula Renault and Porsche are racing around an historic racetrack that is a fundamental, it's almost a mirror image of what it would have been when Formula One went there following the Second World War. There's more barrier up, there's a little bit more protection runoff. The track has changed because we've now got this revised chicane. We've now got a different pit complex and down at the, what was the, the old uh, gas works, Herpen. Mm. When you came out of Tabac, for example, it was a, a sort of a curve all the way through to what was then the, the, the gas works, Herpen Bend. And that then has been altered to accommodate the swimming pool and the... The, the Raskas. Yeah, the, well, the Raskas as well. So all that changed around about... 71-ish, I think, 72. But fundamentally, it's been unchanged in most terms since 1972. There's not an awful lot more they can do in terms of making the racetrack in its current layout easier for drivers to find a way past a competitor. I know that Lewis Hamilton has considered or suggested that maybe we could or they could, that's the the government of the principality or the Automobile Club of Monaco, could find a way of extending the circuit. And actually, it wouldn't be terribly difficult to do this. And my solution would be, when you come down from the Lowe's Herp and you've got, it's, there's two corners, Portier. The first one is the lead into the second one. But between the two, there is actually a roundabout, which is behind the barriers, mm. And if you go the wrong way around the roundabout, you could go all the way down the Avenue Princess Grace as far as you like until you get to France. <laughs> <laughs> because the borders of Monaco and France are by the old beach hotel. Mm. But it's probably about a kilometer in length or maybe longer between the roundabout at Portier down to where the border would be. So you could go down the dual carriageway past all those magnificent apartment blocks, past the old, it's now the Meridian Beach Plaza, do a U-turn at the sporting club, or even if you wanted to go up to the sporting club, go around the roundabout, back down again, you could make a three-mile racetrack comfortably. It would require considerable um, thought, because I'm not quite sure how wide the two carriageways, which run parallel to one another, but, Jack, I tell you what, on the return leg, from, let's say, the, the Meridian Beach Plaza Hotel, yeah. 
all the way down to where you would rejoin the track at, the, at Portier, they would be doing 200 miles an hour before they even entered the tunnel. <laughs> now, let's see who is got the you-know-what <laughs> to challenge that type of racetrack. Yeah. And whether it would make for better motor racing or not, but it would certainly make for a longer lap, and it would maybe give opportunities, which, I mean, what Danny Ricardo did was phenomenal, but he would be only able to have done so on Monaco. There's no other racetrack yeah. in the world that Formula One currently visits that he could have driven in the manner he did, and only not even getting into seventh gear through the tunnel. Mm. No other racetrack. Everywhere else he would have been overtaken in the blink of an eye. Now, that's one thought, one, one potential solution. I'm tell you what, wouldn't have make for an exciting circuit because you'd have all the traditional elements, the pits, Sandivaux, Massenet, Casino Square, Mirabeau, Lowe's, Portier, turn left, a mega blast all the way down. Let's say I use the beach plaza as an example, but you could go down further than that. And there are other options. There's other access roads and there's continual construction going on in the Principality. So maybe it's not so far out of the question. And remember also, there's going to be major reclamation from the, I'm going to say the beach, but where the, the tunnel is, that's reclaimed. That's not the old original tunnel. Mm. And there's plans to extend that further out into the Mediterranean. 15 acres, I believe. 2 billion euros. It's cheap, I tell there's, you. There's it's very cheap. 2 billion euros for 15 acres yeah. in Monaco is... It's very cheap. So... Maybe, maybe not, maybe not, maybe in 2019 or 20, but maybe somewhere like 2025, there could easily be a significantly different extension to the traditional circuit. You, you, you want to keep the traditional elements because that's what makes it such a magical place to visit. And everybody, every sponsor, and think of the people that were, I mean, the fans. Your dad was there. He was. And sitting in a grandstand close to the action and seeing racing cars coming through Tabac, running right out against the barrier. I mean, you wouldn't get a fag paper between the car. and In fact, some of them were clipping the barrier on the exit. Mm. And then basically, certainly in qualifying, the flick to the left through the first part of the swimming pool, straightening the car up, correcting it. And before you can blink, they're on the brakes to turn to the exit. of the. I mean, it is mega to watch. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like. It's almost at a point, I feel, are these cars now so quick on this racetrack that we're at the limit of what a human being has got the capacity to absorb and adapt and adjust to? Oh, that's interesting. Well, so if the cars were, you know, another 10% quicker, would a human actually be able to, to navigate it at that speed? I don't know how much quicker those car, any race car could go through that sequence of corners yeah. than they're presently doing. Yeah. Because the, at the point when you exit the entrance to the point that you begin your exit of the exit, it's about a second and a bit. Mm. I mean, my little Lotus, I could count it in my, tire, no, on my Hoyer Carrera <laughs> chronograph, which is currently on my wrist. <laughs> I think we'll leave it there. I think that's a nice... Watty and Jack on F1.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.